in this passing moment, karma ripens and all things come to be. I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. This life is as real as a dream. The one who knows it cannot be found. And truth is not a thing. Therefore, I vow to choose this Dharma entrance gate. May all Buddhas and wise ones help me live this vow. So that's really the question for all of us, isn't it? How can we live that way with what is? How can we live that vow? So tonight we wanted to continue the exploration of how to establish awareness. And already in the talks we've explored breath and body and we've explored the realm of Vedana, the experience of pleasantness and unpleasantness and neither. And we've explored the mind itself. And we've come now to the fourth foundation, that of the Dhammas. And um, you could think of this as really the categories of phenomena that we encounter when we give our attention to our present experience. Joseph Goldstein says, the Buddha includes in this part of the sutta a comprehensive list of the basic organizing principles of his teachings. The hindrances, the aggregates, the sense spheres, the factors of awakening, and the four noble truths. So when I read that, I was a little overwhelmed because this is no small order for a Dharma talk, one Dharma talk. And I thought a little bit about how Philip talked last night about all the four foundations talks that he had heard over the years. And I think actually this list goes past that. It probably has the seed, if it's not the actual topic, of pretty much every Dharma talk I've ever heard in all of my 30 years of practice and probably the seed of all the Dharma talks that you've ever heard in all of your years. So it's a staggering number and um, it felt like a considerable challenge. So we're going to look tonight at an overview of these patterns of the mind and the heart and how when we establish mindfulness of them and in them, um, knowing them can culminate in the last of the groups, in the knowing of the four noble truths, where we complicate, contemplate the nature of suffering and the ending of suffering. So when I was writing this talk, I decided I would call it You Are Not Alone, because really this, this foundation is pointing toward the patterns of thoughts and experience that are seen by everyone as we relax and observe our human condition. 
And as I thought about it, I thought, you know, it's, it's really amazing, isn't it? The Buddha was teaching 2,500 years ago, which is a while, and he was talking about the minds and hearts of the people that he knew. And when we look at this list and we talk about this list and we teach about this list, it's completely available and identical with our experience, which is kind of amazing, really, you know, that it's still so totally applicable. And there's a place where it's so important to know that you're not alone as you do this. So that reminded me of one of my all-time favorite Dharma stories about a young person who had come to a retreat and they'd come out of a period of, you know, a lot of depression and difficulty in their lives and they were feeling pretty, pretty desperate, pretty up against the wall, not knowing what to do next. And so they'd heard about a retreat and they signed up for it and they went. And um, the first night, the instructions, for some basic instructions for sitting were given. And at this particular retreat, the instructions were given on a, a videotape by one of the senior, by the senior teacher in the lineage. And so the student was sitting there and he was listening very carefully to the instructions and he heard this wonderful instruction. He heard, pay attention to your desperation. And he thought, wow, how do they know? You know, how, pay, oh, this is wonderful. They know that I'm desperate. And he sat there and paid attention to his desperation and he went to bed and he thought a little about his desperation and he got up in the morning, paid attention to his desperation, went into the hall and they put the, the videotape on again, same videotape, same instructions. And he listened quite carefully and this time he heard, pay attention to your respiration. <laughs> so, but it's a sweet story, isn't it? Because... It really, it was so important. It was wonderful that he misheard it because he felt so seen and so understood and so not alone. And that really allowed him then to move into an open-hearted way into the retreat. And then I thought actually some about my own story and about Years and years ago, I was a very young woman. I was, I don't know, maybe 25 or so. And I'd gone off um, to help at a women's retreat. It was a Catholic retreat. And um, I was there and there was, there was I guess, helping the retreat. Uh, my memory's not so totally clear these days. Um, a really wonderful young priest who was much loved by everyone. And we were doing some kind of sharing. And at some point, this person who was, you know, quite a wonderful leader and teacher talked about how he was worried that he wasn't loved. And I thought, what? He's worried about, I'm not the only person who worries about not being loved. And it was a real eye-opener for me that I wasn't alone in this process of, of trying to figure out what it was to be human and having fears about no one loves me and that kind of thing. And again, I began to realize that I was part of a much larger community and really more connected and not quite so weird as I thought I was, maybe. I'm still not so sure, but... Um, so what's important about all of this and, and important about the sense of patterns and teachings where you can look and find yourself is that your own crazed, wiggly, painful mind and heart and body can be known and can be understood and can be liberated. And knowing that and beginning to have a sense that you fit into these teachings 
it can be hugely helpful. Whatever is happening in you can be found. And some of you, I was just thinking as I just said that just now, of so many times when people come in for interviews and they sit down and they kind of start saying, well, you know, this thing is happening. And, and there's always that sense of somehow I, as the teacher, am going to be surprised. And there's always a sort of a palpable sense of relief in the room when I kind of go, oh, yeah, that. <laughs> and we all share that and know it. So these dhammas, these, this list, points to how we can actually see the Buddha's teachings and we can see where to put them to work in our own experience. So again, they're the five hindrances, the five obstacles to seeing clearly, the five aggregates, that which makes up our human experience, the six sense spheres, the seven factors of awakening, and the four noble truths. So one of the lovely things about this sutta that has come up in some of the previous um, talks is that there's, there are refrains that work their way through the sutta. So, um, and of course, all of these suttas were meant to be chanted. So the refrain gave, gives everybody a chance to sort of sing, chant the chorus, if you will, sing the chorus and underline it a little bit. So the refrain in this case, tells us how to work with each of these. And it says we're to contemplate them internally. So to contemplate them within your own being. And then to contemplate them externally. So to be aware that it's happening around you, other people. And then both internally and externally, which um, is a way of of suggesting that it's not personal. It happens inside you and outside you. It just happens. It isn't particularly connected to self or other. We are to notice that everything on this list arises and then that it passes away and that they arise and pass away. And we are to be mindfully aware of them. That's all it says. It doesn't say change them or become them or get rid of them. It just says to be mindfully aware of them without clinging to them, without getting involved or identified with them. So I want to talk a little bit about each of the lists and then we'll move into the Four Noble Truths. So the five hindrances. So these hindrances are desire, the wanting mind that leans out. It may only lean as far as lunch, but it leans out, or maybe it leans out to the bell, you know, if only the bell would ring. But there's that wanting mind that begins to kick in sometimes. And there's the mind that is filled with aversion. I don't like it. I don't want it. Mm. There's um, sloth and torpor. So as somebody once said, it sounds a little like a law firm, but (laughs) probably one you wouldn't go to. But, you know, that place where where it gets sleepy and sticky and and sometimes a, a little bit just the side of sleep where it's kind of hypnagogic. There's restlessness and worry, and there's doubt. So, you know, the good news is you're not alone. These hindrances belong to everyone here. Everyone. Everyone who sits in this room, those of us up in front, those of you down here, work with those hindrances, you know, most of the time. It's like every garden has weeds, you know. You don't get a garden without weeds and you have to tend to the weeds. And every mind has obstacles to awakening. As we settle, as we get a bit more concentrated, these, and we work with them, these can diminish. diminish. But until that happens, it's really important to know 
what to do with them. So the first thing is always to be mindful of them. You know, to establish mindful mindfulness to, as Philip said last night, it was really lovely. He said to receive them. You know, imagine receiving your hindrance. You know, hello, how are you? You know, nice to meet you. Welcome. And then you 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 become mindful not to meet them with aversion because guess what? You're meeting a hindrance with another hindrance and that only compounds the problem. So not liking your hindrance um, doesn't help at all. And then sometimes there are things you can do to counter them when it becomes a really difficult um, problem. One of the things to remember about the hindrances when they show up is that they really point us toward where we still have work to do. So in a way, it's helpful. You know, if you suddenly are sitting there and you've been thinking you're having a really great retreat and you're really getting somewhere and you're really getting concentrated and then something happens and you have a difficult day and it feels like you're going backwards, yeah, it's not so much fun for that to happen and it's letting you know, oops, there's something here that you haven't tended to. It's, it's your own teacher in a way. And, and we can become students of our hindrances and become friendly with them. I was listening to a talk of <clears throat> guys, and maybe he told this story at the um, first part of this retreat because I, I left partway through. But he was talking about Ajahn Liam who is a Thai monk who is considered by many people to be fully enlightened. And Ajahn Liam talked about how his fear was his worthy opponent. So really understanding that this very difficult aversive mind state was something that if he, that as he worked with it, he learned from it and his practice deepened. So then the next list is that of the five aggregates. And this is the stuff of our existence. So this is form, so the the body, the material, feeling, again, Vedana again, perception, that which recognizes things, mental formation, so all the many factors of the mind, which includes your thoughts and your emotions, and it includes volition, And then consciousness, which is that which knows. is simply that which knows or cognizing. Sometimes it's likened to to mirror-like awareness. Sometimes these are called the, besides the aggregates, they're called the five heaps or the five baskets. The image that has made the most sense to me over the years, thinking about the aggregates, I think of them as kind of being like five stones in a river. And as the water flows through the stones, it creates a certain eddy. And the eddy is there. That's you or me. And as long as all those stones are there, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, then there's this event that calls itself you. But at some point, the stones stop being there. The aggregates are not bound together anymore. And the event ceases. The the eddy isn't there anymore if you will. There's a very powerful moment that I've always loved in the chants that are done at the monasteries. And when we do them in English, it sort of makes the hair on the back of my neck rise. It says, form is not self. Feeling is not self. Perception is not self. Mental formations are not self. Consciousness is not self. You know, takes the breath away, right? And so really encouraging us not to identify with any of these things which are impermanent, which have come together for a while, and which will disperse. This feels like a rapid tour through this list, but nonetheless... um, The six sense spheres, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. So this is the basis 
for everything that we know. The eye, the seeing and the knowing and seeing of the seeing, the ear, the hearing and the knowing of the hearing, the nose, the smell and the knowing of the smelling, the tongue and the body and the mind. All of these, that's all we have. If you can find anything else, let me know. But that's all we know are those six events. And examined closely, there isn't any self there either. It's moment after moment, a moment of seeing, a moment of hearing, a moment of awareness of mind, a moment of awareness of smell, all going along so fast that we glue it together and say, oh, you know, listening to a Dharma talk, eating my lunch. Um, But actually, it's many, 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 many little moments of a sense and the knowing of that sense. There's no self there either. And when we look at that closely, as as the mind settles and gets quieter and quieter, then we're able to begin to deconstruct the notion of self. So then the next and last list before the four foundations is that of the factors of awakening. And I always love this list because it feels to me like this is the good news list. You know, this is, these are the factors that show up in the mind and that support waking up. They're kind of anti-hindrances if you, if you want to consider them that way. So the first of these factors is the factor of mindfulness. So again, it comes up. Um, there's the factor of interest, that place which can kind of discriminate the, the states of mind and your experience. The factor of energy, so much needed for your practice. That comes as no news to you at this point. The factor of rapture, that place where we have delight and um, and some sense of refreshment in our practice. The factor of calm, the factor of concentration, and the factor of equanimity. And many of these will show up again in the coming weeks as we um, consider transcendental dependent origination. Um, And really, um, it's so worth remembering that as you investigate your own mind and heart, that there are factors in there that will support your waking up. And when they show up, to really notice them and to give them your attention. So again, we are to contemplate these dhammas internally and externally and both internally and externally. We are to notice that they arise and that they pass away and that they arise and pass away. And we are to be mindful of these dhammas so that we are continuously aware without clinging to them and without getting involved or identified. So we come then to the last of the lists, which is the Four Noble Truths. It's the first teaching which was given by the Buddha And it's common to pretty much all Buddhist groups. I heard the Dalai Lama once say say that that was his criteria for whether a group or a person was a Buddhist or not, was whether they understood the Four Noble Truths. So remember, probably most of you would remember this, if you ever walked into a house where someone has just baked bread, you know, that wonderful smell when you walk in and the loaf comes out of the oven. This was in the days before we worried about carbohydrates and gluten and all of that. You know, so, so imagine that this is a bread that you can eat if you need to do that. <laughs> and, and there was that sense of just basic good nourishment. Just basic good nourishment. And so... 
this this teaching, this teaching about the Four Noble Truths is really like the warm, fresh bread of the teachings. And no matter how many times you've had it, because that's true about fresh bread, isn't it? It always smells good. And if you're able to eat it, it always tastes good. And there's always some sense of just basic nourishment. And so when we hear this teaching over and over, because again, this is one of those teachings that probably many of you have heard a gazillion Four Noble Truths talks because we give them all the time. And it reminded me a little today as I thought about it and yesterday, because I was working on the talk yesterday as well, of this wonderful rain that we've been having. I think Philip mentioned it last night too. You know, this wonderful rain and it's just soaking into the ground and soaking, 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 and it goes deeper and deeper every time it rains, and the streams get fuller, and the frogs get happier. And so this teaching is like that. Every time it rains the Four Noble Truths, it sinks in a little bit more, deeper and deeper into your own being until it becomes kind of part of who you are. Ajahn Chah used to talk about the importance of becoming dharma. Becoming dharma. Isn't that a nice phrase? Becoming dharma. And so when we hear these talks over and over again, when we listen to the dharma, when you hear the Four Noble Truths so many times, it's a way of becoming dharma so that we can actually live it and uh, really understand that these are the key to freedom. So in this teaching, the Buddha summed up his enlightenment experience and pointed us to the nature of dukkha, to the nature of suffering or stress, and to the end of that suffering and stress. All of you are here. You're like that student that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk who came because of his desperation. And you may not have been desperate this time. Some of you have been to this retreat way too many times for it to be out of desperation. But almost all of us in the beginning started our practice, started our search because of some level of suffering, some sense of incompleteness, some sense of things not being quite right. And we wanted to find out how we could change that. And so we're all here to find a way to more freedom, if not complete freedom, at least more freedom. And um, my guess is that as the retreat is going on, you are increasingly seeing um, your suffering and hopefully increasingly seeing its causes and perhaps now and then occasionally seeing where it is that you can let go of all of that and become free. So the young Gotama lived at a time that was not like ours, not unlike ours, in that it was a time of a lot of social upheaval and technological change. And he, he saw that the people around him were suffering. And what arose in him was some yearning to understand that suffering and to end it. We live in a very similar time, probably if anything more so, a huge technological change. I'm 72 years old. You know, I can remember my mother with one of those washing machines where you had to hand crank the the clothes through the wringer to get the water out and then you took everything out. I mean, it was amazing that we had a washing machine. It was very special for her because she hadn't always had one. And I would spend time sometimes in houses that didn't have refrigerators that had ice boxes that really were ice boxes because you put ice in them in order to keep things cold. And, you know, iPhones and computers were completely not even thought of at that time. And it's astounding from this perspective. And everyone in this room is plenty old enough, even those of you who are young, to look back and see how fast this change is happening and how much it's affecting our culture and our world. And it's troubling sometimes. You know, what are we going to do and what will happen? 
And how do we find freedom in the midst of all this suffering? So the Buddha wanted to understand the human situation, which is the great yearning for all human beings. What is? What does it mean to be human? You know how how can we be human and be contented and be at peace? It's a very confusing state. This human thing, it is. I mean, we're born and we die. You know, once you're born, you start dying really effectively. We sicken and we age. There are babies who are cute and wonderful and new, and there's people who are starving, there's torture, and there's great art, there's symphonies, and there's environmental disasters, there's galaxies and infinitesimal beings of incredible delicacy. What is going on? How can this be? How can this mix make any sense at all? And what are we to do? So the young Gautama went on his own journey and he studied and he trained and he came to that night under the bow tree and sat himself down and had the experience he had of waking up. And he pondered it for a while, for a period of weeks, you know, sort of thinking about what he had seen and really unsure if he would teach or not because he didn't think anyone else could understand. So maybe he wouldn't. He'd just take his enlightenment experience and go off to the mountains and kind of keep it to himself. But as the legends have it, some heavenly being, seeing that he might not teach, came down and persuaded him that there were at least a few beings who had just a little bit of dust in their eyes and might wake up. And as I was writing this today, I thought, that makes me so joyful. I am so happy that that heavenly being or whatever it was persuaded him to go ahead and teach. We we wouldn't be here, would we? There wouldn't be any teachings. I wouldn't be giving this talk. It's so wonderful that he went ahead and taught. And so he went to Sarnath and he gathered his five friends that he'd been practicing with around him and he told them what he had discovered. And he gave this teaching, this wonderful teaching on the Four Noble Truths. Last night, Philip used the word dignity, which caught my attention. And I was thinking that, you know, these are the, you could call them the four dignified truths, or maybe they're the four truths that bring dignity. And they're noble, which certainly has a sense of dignity. And they are astounding and powerful and very elegant in their simplicity. And they are utterly life-changing. You could study nothing else in the Buddhist world for the rest of your life, and this would be enough. You could change your life just working with these teachings, with these four truths. So he understood that we needed to change how we see things, that our ignorance was the root cause of suffering, And he saw that if we could see clearly with a steady and trained mind, we would have a far better likelihood of responding to situations in a way that does not cause suffering to ourselves or to others. So he begins by the simple description of saying, there is dukkha. There is this thing that is, we call, suffering. It's not a pejorative statement. It's simply a fact. There is dukkha. And he says there's a cause for our suffering, which is our attachment or our clinging or craving. And then he says there can be an ending. And then he says there's a path, there's a way to end it, which is the Eightfold Path. Wise view, wise understanding, wise speech and action and choice of livelihood and then wise use of energy, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. So dukkha is a tricky word because it doesn't translate very well into English. Sometimes it's easier just to say dukkha, and then as long as we're all on the same page about kind of what we mean, it can mean suffering as we use the word, but it can also mean stress, or it can mean anguish, 
or it can mean simply it's not ever satisfactory. Nothing is ever fully satisfactory. It's always not quite right. So probably tonight I'll mostly say suffering, but we'll see. I'll mix it up with dukkha and stress probably. And you're welcome to fill in with your own words. So he says there are three kinds, right? There's what's, I always love this. It's called dukkha dukkha. So this is the stuff, this is the suffering suffering. This is the pain. In 12-step work, they say pain is required and suffering is optional. So this is the required part. This is the part where you have a body, it's going to hurt, it's going to get old, it sometimes gets sick, it will die. You know, th- things are, it's just inherent in the human um, existence. It's utterly unescapable. And then there's the kind of dukkha, anicca dukkha, where nothing lasts. It's the incredible impermanence of everything, rising and passing so quickly. Even the good stuff, you know, if you have, I mean, that's always the trick on retreat, right? You come in and you have a marvelous sip. It's so wonderful. And the mind is quiet and there's space, and things arise, and they pass, and you notice them, and you don't wander off. Cool. You know, the bell rings, finally, maybe you sit longer for a while. You finally get up, you go out, and you walk. Maybe there's lunch. And then you come back in, and you think, gonna do it again. You know, it's gonna, it's gonna stick around. Does it stick around? Maybe for a part of a day, or or so, but sooner or later, even that wonderful mind state disappears. It's impermanent. And then there's a kind of dukkha, the kind of dukkha called sankara dukkha, which is about how everything's, nothing's ever really very solid. It's all um, coming in and out, and we know this from physics actually, going in and out of being all the time. There's nothing to hold on to. It's very subtle. None of this is avoidable. And working with it is part of what we need to do in order to wake up. So there's things to do with each of these truths. There's, there's ways that we need to work with them. We need to see this dukkha, this suffering. We need to understand it. And then there's a point at which it has been understood. We need to see the origin of suffering, the attachment, the clinging, and then that clinging must be let go of, and then there's the point at which that has been done. We have to see the cessation of suffering that is possible for it to end. That needs to be realized, to be made real in your own life, and then the point at which that has been realized. And then we see the path to the end of suffering. We see this, the way of the Eightfold Path. We walk it, we develop it, and then there's the point at which that has happened. It needs to be experiential, is really what the Buddha is saying. We have to see the actual pain. You have to see where you get tangled up in it, where, or where you push it away, or where you worry about it. And when we do all of that, you know, you see this, this thing that's going on and then you get tangled up in it. That's that image of you've already got the arrow of the first suffering and then you take another arrow and stick it into yourself with all of this tangled up stuff that we do. These truths are a really important place where you can establish your mindfulness. You can become a student of your own dukkha. You can become a student of your own anguish. So when it comes on the cushion, to really give it your attention, to receive it, to allow it to come in, to notice what brings it about. What are the conditions of of dukkha arising? Notice how you react to it or respond to it. And notice where you get caught, you know? What are the places where you particularly get caught? Do you cling to the present, you know, even the really wonderful, pleasant or even wonderful mind states? Or does your mind rise up easily in aversion when 
things are difficult. And then when you're having one of those days, which come on retreats sometimes when there's less suffering or maybe even no suffering, to notice what are the conditions. Don't just get excited. Wow, a day with no suffering. Be mindful of it because that's a place to really notice what what is the mind like? What is the heart like? What are the conditions when, when there is no suffering? Ajahn Chah, it is said, I didn't never know him, so this is one of my stories of my grandfather teacher, if you will. Um, but it is said that he used to wander around his monastery and every now and then he'd walk up to a monk and he'd say, are you suffering today? You know, are you suffering today? And then really encourage people to look at uh, what's happening with your suffering. It's possible to take all of this difficulty, every event of it, it's a teacher for you. You know, this is a teacher. You can welcome it as something that will help you to wake up if you investigate it, if you bring your mindfulness to it. So often what happens is we don't let our suffering in at all. And, or, we, or we shut it down. You know, I, as I told you at the beginning, I sat the first two weeks of the February retreat here. And, you know, there I was having a nice retreat. You know, it's going along okay, I guess. And then all of a sudden there was this memory that I, of something that had happened some years ago. Not, not wasn't a childhood memory. And I'd completely forgotten about it. And it was very painful. And I had just shut it in some closet, I guess, and closed the door. And I guess it decided that it was time to reemerge and show itself. And I know that that's a very common experience when we're sitting a retreat, is that different things from our past come up or different ways of being in our mind and heart. And suddenly we're looking at some suffering that we haven't been bothering to pay too much attention to. Or sometimes the body will um, start being very painful. And uh, many people have reported incidents of the body is painful and they realize it's some pain that they didn't allow themselves to feel sometimes years ago. And now it's coming through so that they can feel it. Seems to be required, unfortunately, to feel some of this pain. And we even less allow ourselves to see the way in which once something difficult is there, you know, the unpleasant sound that you don't want to hear, and, um, but there is hearing, and then aversion arises. And then we go into the aversion and we start thinking about how we can change things, how we can get rid of the yogi who's making the noise or how we could change the retreat or fix up the retreat hall so it was a little better. And we're caught in the aversion and the, the thinking. And so, you know, the, this is a place where you can begin to see here's... here's the, the noticing the hearing. So this is one of the foundations of mindfulness, right? And then how that supports seeing um, into the Four Noble Truths. And so this can kind of go on and then pretty soon you have a huge mind storm and we're caught. Or maybe there's a sound and you notice, oh, hearing. 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 If you get really good, you can notice it just as vibration at the ear. That's pretty interesting. So you might not even know, is it the frogs? Is it the turkeys? Is it somebody breathing? It's just hearing. It's just hearing and the knowing of hearing. That's all. And there's nothing else. And there's no storm, is there? It's pretty wonderful, actually. So there's no suffering. No greed. No aversion. No delusion just a moment of freedom. There's a reading from Ajahn Chah that I've always liked. 
He says, your mind will become still in any surrounding like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So, you know, this teaching of the four foundations, this list that we've been working with all week, reminds me a little of the great cosmic dance of the solar system and the galaxies and the stars. And all these pieces are interacting and dancing together. And it's so big and it's so vast and it's so complicated and it's so wonderful. Every one of the foundations come into play in the four truths, the body, the Vedana, the mind. Each, when ignored or not seen, contributes to our suffering. Every one of the lists in the four foundations, the list of the dharmas, will support the ending of suffering. If you can meet the hindrances with mindfulness and understand that these are conditioned arisings in the mind, they're not personal. You don't need to take offense. And when we do that, we're not entangled and we are at least somewhat freer. When we see that this event that, in my case I call Mary Grace, is made up of the aggregates so loosely bound together. We are so incredibly fragile. It doesn't take much to unbind them. You know that. It doesn't take much. And and that's what, when we see that, and we see then that every time we create solidity there, you know, some sense of this is me, or you have a desire for it to be permanent, or you have some sense of importance around it, what happens? Once again, we're caught in suffering and we're creating suffering around us. And we also see that when we understand that it's impermanent, this this eddy, this bunch of aggregates, it's already unbound. It's already dead, if you will. You know, and when we hold it that way, then whatever is happening, there's less suffering around it. There's more ease. When we contemplate the sense spaces, the seeing and the knowing of the seeing, the hearing and the knowing of the hearing, and we see, really, it's breathtaking. Six things? That's all we have? That's all we have. Just those six things. And we see how much we make out of those six things. Wow. How do we do that? And when we, and we see, when we really pay attention to it, when we identify with them and we make them me and mine, then again, there again, we lead, that leads into suffering. And when we're blessed with the mind and heart that is mindful, that can discern, discern it's different, the different states of mind that has energy, that rests in the delight of awareness, that has some calm, that is concentrated and equanimous, then we also see that these states support not clinging and lead to awakening. These four truths are utterly elegant in their simplicity. They're so simple. They're not easy, but they're simple. And they are very much, indeed, the path to the ending of suffering. And they are to be studied and investigated, to be lived and to be realized. This is what brings us to the ending of suffering. You are not alone. You are not alone. Every one of us works with every one of these teachings. These dhammas are descriptive of the human mind and heart. And liberation is possible for each one of us. The Buddha says, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. 
Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the teachings. That's all. You got it. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the teaching. Whoever has practiced this truth has practiced all of the teachings. Whoever has realized this truth has realized all of the teachings. And Ajahn Sumedho says, Awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change and emotional change. Stay with that because it is a refuge that is indestructible. It is not something that changes. It is a refuge you can trust in. The refuge is not something that you create. It is not creation. It is not an ideal. It is very practical and very simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice it's like this. So let's just sit where you are and breathe together for a moment. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice it's like this. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.